Good morning. Ooh, buzzy. Um, my name's Tony. Uh, I don't think some of you guys, a lot of you might not know me. I, I'm the youth pastor over at Springfield Faith Center, and uh, my wife and I attended Fifth Avenue for a season, and, and Pastor Tim has been a, a friend and a mentor of mine for a long time, and so I'm, I'm really excited that I get to uh, speak to you guys this morning. Um, I, was, uh, I got in a little bit of trouble the last time I, I spoke here. Um, I posted on Facebook that I, I was speaking at my favorite church in the world, and that's a problem because I work at a different church, and so... <laughs> Um, I didn't post on Facebook this time and uh, went back and re-edited it to one of my favorite churches in the world. If Jonathan's in this room, don't tell your dad. He's not on Facebook. Anyways, um, I, uh, I get to speak on, on the topic of Mary this morning because Tim's been going through this Christmas series. And I have to admit, this was, um, this was a difficult message for me to write at first. And, and I thought it was because I naturally just don't connect with Mary very well. I mean, we don't have a, a lot in common. I'm, I'm not a teenager. Uh, I'm not a woman. I'm not uh, an ethnic woman from an oppressed system. Uh, I'm, I'm not pregnant, and barring some major leaps in modern science, I never will be pregnant. And, um, and I'm not a virgin. Thank you, Jesus. So, like, that's, these are things that, my wife's not here, so I can make these jokes. Those, these are things that, uh, that Mary and I don't have in common. And, and then I realized that, that I actually had a lot of uh, personal hang-ups when it came to Mary. And that's hard for me to admit, because I try to be somebody who... Um, Try to be somebody who's forward-thinking. Try to be somebody who's, who's conscious of equality and, um, and injustices that have kept certain people uh, from being able to achieve the stuff that they had the right to achieve. But as I was, as I was studying these passages, um, I realized that I myself still have some hang-ups that needed to be checked. Um, I grew up in, in uh, theological circles that, that didn't know what the heck to do with Mary because uh, a, lot of, um, a lot of my Sunday school teachers and a lot of my family and some of my Bible college professors, um, they were lapsed Catholics. And so they, they had some very strong views about how uh, they felt like the Catholic Church worshipped Mary and prayed to Mary. And, um, and that kind of I internalized that and kind of made Mary an issue that I had with her. Um, and then I also had... Uh, came from a tradition that didn't really know what to do with women in the Bible unless it was to teach them how to be better wives or better mothers. And as I was, re- I know, it's abhorrent. And as I was, uh, as I was reading this, um, I realized that like, I had to check myself and I had to do some repenting on my own because I still have that, that hardwiring in me that, that just doesn't approach women in Scripture the same way I approach men in Scripture. And so this was, this was, that's a problem. And that's something that needed to be addressed. And I'm actually really grateful for this opportunity because it forced me to, to look at areas that I thought I had grown a lot in that I hadn't grown as much as I, I like to pat myself on the back thinking I had. So this morning I thought that the best way to approach this would be to just look at a couple passages of Mary's lives and just sit as students of what Mary has to teach us. The same way we would Moses or Paul, like that we would just sit and, and, and look at this as a, as a hero, a towering figure in scripture, somebody that we can just sit and learn from. So I'm going to pray real quick. Um, Lord, thank you so much uh, for this church. Thank you so much for um, the way that this church provides safety and healing for people and the way that it has uh, for me in my own life. Um, God, I just ask that your spirit would just be so... Um, so apparent this morning, um, that we would just catch a glimpse of what you're wanting to teach us and what you're calling us to. And we love you, Lord, in your name. Amen. Um, So we're in Luke 26 uh, through 38. 
And, uh, and it goes, in the six months of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent an angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are, hi- you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. And I always thought that was kind of funny because, like, wondering what kind of, what kind of a greeting it would be. He said, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. He didn't say, I've come to kill you. But she, she's, she's greatly troubled at his words. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. You are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, and his kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One, will be born, uh, so the Holy one to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, she who was unable to conceive in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant. Mary answered, may your word uh, to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. So right, after bat, right off the bat, I have a question. Um, a question leaps out to me as I read this passage. Why is Mary considered highly favored by God? And, and especially like when you consider the context, in those days, if you were to say that somebody was highly favored by God, you'd usually be talking about a military leader, you'd be talking about somebody of great political authority, a wealthy businessman, royalty, those were people that were considered highly favored by God in those days. And so for an angel to come to Mary, who was this lower class, uh, teenaged, unmarried uh, Jew in an oppressed system, it doesn't seem like she's the type of person that an angel would come and say you are highly favored by God so but 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 this is something interesting the Greek word here for favored is charis everybody say charis charis is often translated as grace charis is also often translated as that which brings joy and so I love this that the angel is coming is communicating to Mary not just that you have favor with God but you have grace with God and you bring joy to God And I want to know, what is it about Mary? There's something about Mary. What is it about Mary that God looks at her and says, you bring me joy? And I think think a big piece of the answer to this question is in Luke uh, 138, where her response to this angel's prophecy is, I am the Lord's servant. May your word be fulfilled in me. So let's let's just consider a couple observations here. Mary, by saying this, Mary is taking on an assignment that could be the end of her life. Again, let's consider the cultural context. She's not married. And this angel told her that you're going to have this miracle baby. And she's going to ha- and eventually it's going to show. And she's going to have to tell everybody in her village that she's not married to this person that she's betrothed to. But somehow she's pregnant. And she's going to tell them that it was God's baby. Like, I mean, I, nobody, I've heard a lot of excuses for pregnancy. I think that's the worst one I've ever heard. And so, like, I don't think that, like, that's something that would fly. And in those days... And those days, if you were betrothed to somebody and you didn't have sex with them and you got pregnant and it wasn't their child, they had the right to kill you. And so by Mary saying, I am the Lord's servant, by Mary saying, uh, by Mary saying may your word be fulfilled in me, she's literally putting her life on the line. She's literally putting her life on the line for the call of God on her life. That's a huge 
huge thing. The second thing is, as a lower class unmarried Drew taking on this assignment, Mary is functionally destroying what little good standing she has in her social circles, but also what little good standing her family would have in these social circles. But this, this actually makes sense, because only someone who's willing to lay it all on the line for the call of God on her life can be someone who's willing to raise a man who will die, an innocent man on a cross. When we take time to stop and, and analyze the story closely, we can actually see how Christ's self-sacrificial ways isn't just a revelation of his divinity, but it's a revelation of the woman who raised him. This, this willingness to say, not my will, but your will be done. You know, we, we read through the Bible, and it's really easy to be like, oh yeah, Jesus is doing that because he's God. Jesus is doing that because the Spirit led him to do it. And I'm not saying those things aren't the case, but we can see a precedent for Jesus' attitude and his behavior when we stop and we look at Mary's attitude and behavior to the risky things of God. Mary is demonstrating something here that dem- Jesus demonstrated through his whole life, but it's also something that Jesus beckons his followers to demonstrate. There's a Greek word uh, that appears in the New Testament several times, and the word is pistis. And pistis is a fun word because it feels like you're swearing, but actually you're speaking biblical Greek. And pistis is often translated, almost always translated as faith. So like Ephesians 2.8, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith, it is by grace you've been saved through pistis. But pistis doesn't just mean faith. Pistis also doesn't just mean, uh, doesn't just mean a belief in unseen things, but it also means uh, fidelity. And it also means faithfulness. So Mary in the story is demonstrating an incredible pistis to God. She's demonstrating an incredible fidelity to God. And it's a fidelity that she imparts to her son. And it's a fidelity that her son imparts to us. In the 1970s, uh, a young man named Ron, he was, he was making a drug one. And he was, he was driving from Spokane, Washington, all the way to Redding, California. And when he got to Oregon, his car broke down in a little town called Harrisburg, Oregon. How many of you guys have ever been to Harrisburg? God bless you. So he, his car broke down in this little town called Harrisburg, Oregon. And the tow truck driver came to help Ron out. And the tow truck driver was the spirit-filled Korean War vet. And Wayne, his name was Wayne. And he came up to Ron. And as Ron and Wayne were sitting in this car, and as they were pulling his truck to get to, his car to get to the mechanic shop, uh, Wayne felt the spirit tell him, you need to invite Ron to have dinner with your wife and kids. Wayne didn't know. Ron had several kilos of cocaine in his trunk. But... Even still, he had this sense in his heart, okay, God is telling me that I need to take this man into my home and have dinner with my wife and my three little girls. Okay. And so Wayne goes, uh, takes Ron in for dinner. Ron watches Wayne pray for his meal. He watches them read stories to his family and his daughters. He watches Wayne tuck his kids in and, and, and show generosity and kindness to his wife. And all throughout this time, Ron is seeing Wayne and he's remembering his own dad's generosity and kindness and how his dad passed away when Ron was only 18 years old. And and then Wayne eventually invited Ron to stay the night at their house because the car was going to take longer than they thought to fix. The next day, as, as Wayne sent his kids off to school, Ron sat down with Wayne and Wayne took the day off from work and they talked all day. And, and, and as, at the end of their conversation, Ron said, what, how, how do I live like with this kindness and wholeness that you have. How do, what, what is it going to take for me to get this? And Wayne responded to Ron like, I'm just trying to live like Jesus because it's the only thing that makes sense in this messy world. I love that. I'm just trying to live like Jesus because it's the only thing that makes sense in this messy world. Well, in that moment, Ron committed his life to Christ. 
And Ron stayed in Harrisburg, and he took the kilos of cocaine to the river there in Harrisburg. I don't know if you guys have ever seen the fireworks there, but that river that goes there, Ron dropped a bunch of cocaine in that river. And he never went back to Spokane. He stayed in Harrisburg, and he helped Wayne start this church called the Holy House. And in the Holy House, they saw hundreds of people coming in and meeting meeting the Lord. And then several years later, Ron met this woman named Kim, and they had a son named Tony. And Ron's my dad. And it's because of Wayne's faithfulness, Wayne's ability... Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's because of Wayne's faithfulness, his fidelity, that I even exist It's because of his willingness to do something potentially very dangerous and potentially very stupid and risky, but his willingness to have the sensitivity to the work of the Spirit. Wayne passed away last week, and I've gotten to to spend these last couple weeks just hanging out with him and hanging out with his family and getting to learn from him and getting to learn lessons. My dad was on a one-way journey to a dead end. I mean, he was going nowhere fast. And it's because of Wayne's pistis, it's because of his fidelity to the things of God, that like I even exist. And then when you, when you sit down and you listen to the stories and you think about it, it's thousands of people exist because of Wayne. Wayne, Wayne, Wayne walked people through suicide and drug addictions and depression and divorce and alcoholism. He walked them through everything and he did the whole thing, never receiving a paycheck for ministry. Just because he had this fidelity and his faithfulness to God. Now, I'm, I'm a pastor, and I plan on being one for the rest of my life, and as such, I get to be in a lot of these conversations about what's the church going to be like in the future. Like, people are, are noticing that many churches are on the decline. They're noticing that my generation, a millennial generation, and the generation after me, Generation Z, we're seeing a lot of them leaving the church, and they're not coming back. And there's this sort of crisis that church leaders are experiencing. And they're putting on podcasts and conferences and writing books and teaching sermon series and are all trying to figure out what's going on and if the church will survive. And that's a silly question. Of course the church will survive. It's been around for 2,000 years. It doesn't look the same it did 2,000 years ago, so it's going to go through some necessary changes, but it is, of course, going to survive. But the question that so many people are wondering is how? How in an increasingly secularized society is the church going to continue to move forward? And it's a really simple, easy question. And it's the same way the church has always moved forward. It's fidelity to God. It's faithfulness. It's this commitment to show hospitality and generosity and love and grace to people that you'd rather not show hospitality and generosity to. That's the only way this thing keeps moving forward. This type of fidelity can save the world because faithfulness to God is faithfulness to love itself. And so if we strive for that level of fidelity in our lives, if we look at this this self-sacrificial love that Mary has, that Jesus clearly learned from, that we're called to learn from, if we look at that, I believe we will see a lot of the brokenness around us make a radical shift. Skipping ahead to Luke 46 through 56. We get this song that Mary sings in response to her pregnancy. Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. And he has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones 
but has lifted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel remember to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary's revealing something powerful here. This is the church is, has traditionally called this song the Magnificat, which, which just means magnify. And, and I love this because what's going on here? She's singing a deeply political, almost anarchy-driven song. Mary's coming from a world, again, the rich hoarded all the power, the money, the resources, and the poor were left to fight each other for the scraps. Not at all like the world we live in today, I say with a healthy dose of sarcasm. Mary is singing of a day when the playing field will be leveled. She's singing of a day when the first shall be last and the last shall be first. She's singing of a day where radical generosity is extended to those who have spent their lives living in the margins. And I want to point out something here. If we're drawing these parallels between Mary and Jesus, there are deep hints of the Sermon on the Mount in this song. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, just Jesus' teaching, it's the law of God's upside-down kingdom. It's, it's Jesus exposing the ways of God to his people where, where we here, we honor, uh, we honor power and we honor conquest and we honor wealth and we, we even honor violence, we celebrate violence. But Jesus is showing, like in God's peaceable kingdom, they honor generosity and they honor service and they honor getting on your hands and knees and serving the poor, right? And we see this in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaching these things. And again... We can sense that maybe this isn't just something that the Spirit implanted in Jesus' head. Maybe this is something Jesus observed from his mom before he did any of these things. And if I was, five years ago, if I was hearing this, I'd be very uncomfortable. But I'm not saying that the Spirit didn't lead Jesus to say these things. But I am saying that Mary modeled this very clearly in this song right here. We see Mary setting this example. I don't know if you've ever written a song or a poem or an essay just for fun, but, but the good stuff, like, it comes from, from the deep inside of you, right? It comes from the core of your being. I just saw, I just saw this movie called Honey Boy with uh, Shia LaBeouf, and it's, it's a movie about his life growing up in the entertainment industry with an abusive father, and he wrote the script, and, and the movie's this invitation into, it's, it's, don't take your kids to see this, but this movie is a, an invitation into Shia's life and process and trauma and pain and hurt, and it's so true and it's so brutally honest that I I walked out of the theater and I just sat in my car for 10 minutes just like replaying over in my head what I saw because it came from deep inside of him. It came from his bones. And that's the stuff that Mary's singing about. She's singing something that's deeply true for her. And once we realize this about Mary, it's impossible to read Jesus' life and teachings without seeing his mother's influence all over the place. Mary is showing us that what we call the margins is actually the center of the kingdom of God. I'm going to say that again. Mary is showing us that what we call the margins is actually the center of the kingdom of God. The coming of Jesus signifies the coming of justice for the outcasts, and Mary's songs reflects this. And it makes me think of, of the, this quote by MLK that I'm sure most of us have heard before, but, but he says, The moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. The moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And this brings us all back to the season of Advent, the season of waiting. 
Because Jesus came and he offered these teachings and, he, and, and the church was inspected to embody, uh, expected to embody these teachings and live them out in the world. But the church is also waiting for Jesus to come back and make this a reality. The church is also waiting for justice to be done. We're also waiting to see the things of God moved and the playing field leveled and the wrongs made right. And it sometimes will feel very tiring and very hard and exhausting and we'll see oftentimes more injustices than we'll see justice. But, the, but, but there's a long game that God's playing here that Mary is singing about. And so I'm going to end this message by just offering a time for us to just stop and I want us to quietly reflect these things. I want us to quietly reflect what it would look like in our own lives to show that same level of fidelity that Mary's showing, that level that says I'm willing to put it all on the line for the call of God. Because if that level of fidelity can raise the Savior of the universe, can you imagine if we all committed to that level of fidelity to just have that lived out in our lives, that willingness to just say, God, whatever it is, no matter how risky, no matter how dangerous, no matter who's going to talk bad about me if I do this, I want to just stop and surrender to your ways. I want to stop and see your will done in my life. And then the other thing, to have a heart that's concerned for justice, to have a heart that's stirred up and sees the brokenness around us and isn't satisfied with the status quo, that isn't satisfied with wrong things being done unchecked. One of my favorite things about church history is that it's always been a prophetic voice calling out to the powerful who are misusing its power. Not always, it was at first, and then it became the powerful. But we've got to go back to that place where we're calling out the power. So I'm just going to, we're going to take one minute. We're going to stop, we're going to pray, and we're just going to ask the Spirit, what does this look like in our lives as we leave today? So, Lord, I just, I can really only pray this for myself, but I hope that that others in this room will agree with me. God, I just ask that you would show me the areas of my life where I can can raise up my faithfulness. Not out of performance, not because I need to please you or earn your love or earn earn your approval. I have all of that. That's already sealed and done. But, God, because, because of that love because of, of how secure I can be in my relationship with you, Lord, what would it look like for me to just be more faithful to you, to be willing to be uncomfortable and self-sacrificial? And God, in my heart where, where I see injustices and I just ignore it, and I look the other way because it makes me uncomfortable, because it makes me feel guilty, God, I just ask that, that I would be like Mary where that stuff is so seen by me that I'm able to just write and express it deep truth because of it. And Lord, I ask that for for every person in this room. And I love you, Lord, in your name. Amen. Have a Merry Christmas, everybody. Um, I do have to rush out of here because I'm going to my church to do middle school right now. So if I don't stay and stop and talk, I'm not being rude.
Merry Christmas, guys. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.